Faith Lutheran Church in the small central Kansas town of Emporia was struggling, like many churches, in the late 20th century. Its congregation was aging, giving was down, and attendance had stagnated. The church was excited when a new pastor arrived. He was young and dynamic and charismatic. He was interested in young people and sports. He was a cross-country runner in college and played tennis. He saw his mission was to transform the church into something that served the whole community. In short order, he established a daycare center to serve the town. He started a volleyball team and a softball team. He revitalized the youth ministry, and people began to see Faith Lutheran as a vital and alive and growing congregation. And they agreed that it was their new minister, Thomas Byrd, who was the reason. In addition to being a good administrator and a good preacher, he viewed himself as a counselor. He always had time to listen. He could provide a shoulder to lean on and a sympathetic ear. Pastor Tom's wife, Sandy, wasn't a traditional minister's wife. She had a master's degree in math and was working on a second degree in computer math. She was a professor at Emporia State College. She was engaging and very popular with her students. They were a busy power couple in the small Kansas community of 25,000. But between their jobs and their three children, they didn't see a lot of each other. The marriage was strained. And the fact that Pastor Tom seemed to counsel a lot of attracted women didn't help ease Sandy's guilt and low self-esteem. Tom was lonely, and Sandy was depressed, afraid that her husband was falling out of love with her. One of the attractive women that Tom was counseling was Lorna Anderson. She was married with four small children. It was a small town, and there was no shortage of gossip about Lorna. She had, it was said, several affairs with men around Emporia, some married, some not. Her husband, Martin Anderson, worked in the medical examiner's office. He met Tom at a local softball game, and then he introduced Tom and Sandy to his wife, Lorna. Before long, the Andersons began attending Faith Lutheran Church. Lorna confided in her new pastor about her unhappiness. She also told him that Martin was an abusive husband. Tom wanted to help her, so he hired her as a part-time secretary at the church. And that's when the trouble began. So relax with an amaretto sour and listen to our tale of adultery, greed, and murder. The pastor and the secretary. July 16, 1983 was a typical summer Kansas night. Hot and dry. Sandy Bird had just received a promotion, but she was reluctant to tell her husband. They'd been fighting. A lot. Over her work. Tom felt she needed to cut back and spend more time with the kids and be more involved at the church. 
and the promotion would mean additional classroom hours and less time at home. But, to her surprise, he seemed fine with it. In fact, he suggested they go out to celebrate. They found a local 14-year-old to babysit, and they went out for dinner and a movie. Around 9.30, they returned to the house. Sandy ran inside and got a bottle of cold duck wine for herself and a bottle of whiskey for her husband. They were going to have a drink and would be back by 10.30, she told her sitter. Later that night, or maybe early the next morning, later that night, Tom called home and asked the sitter if Sandy was there. She wasn't. Later, and no one can agree on when, Tom finally came home. According to the babysitter, he was wearing a white shirt and tie. But Tom said, that's ridiculous. He was wearing a polo shirt. Maybe the babysitter was mistaken, or maybe she had fallen asleep. Sometime, around 11 o'clock, he called the police and reported his wife missing. They had been out to dinner and a movie, he said. Then they went to the church office and had a drink. They'd argued, he told the police, about her new job and the fact she'd have to be spending even less time at home and at the church. Around 10.30 or so, Tom told the police, Sandy left the church and went to her office at the university to work for a while. Tom stayed at the office to put the finishing touches on tomorrow's sermon. He told them he went jogging to clear his head. It was something he often did as he was preparing to preach. Afterwards, he called his house. Sandy wasn't there. There were several phone calls between Tom and the police that night. The next morning... Some kayakers on the Cottonwood River rounded a bend and saw an overturned Peugeot station wagon in the river near the Rocky Ford Bridge. A body was in the water nearby. It was Sandy Bird. The police arrived and quickly determined that Sandy had missed a curve and drove down an embankment and into the river. A tragic accident had taken the life of a popular professor and a prominent citizen and a minister's wife. About 9.30 Sunday morning, the police notified Tom that his wife was dead, found in the Cottonwood River near the Rocky Ford Bridge. What was she doing there? Tom exclaimed. We never go there. And then he said, where is it? One of the investigating officers, a highway patrolman named John Rule, had some doubts about the incident. I feel kind of hinky about it, he told a reporter from the Los Angeles Times years later. There were no skid marks, for one thing. There was a large blood stain on the bridge, about the size of a dinner plate. There were blood drops on tree leaves above the body. Sandy's watch was found on the bottom of the shallow river. And then there was the front seat. Sandy was only 5'1", yet the seat was pushed all the way back. 
Had she been trying to drive the station wagon from that position, she couldn't have even reached the accelerator or the brake. And her friend said that Sandy was almost fanatical about wearing her seatbelt. But when they found the car, the seatbelt was not fastened. When Rule pointed out these things, his supervisor told him they could all be explained by a lot of different things. It was obviously an accident, they said. Don't rock the boat. Pastor Tom continued to work at the church. Some of the other people who worked there in the preschool noticed that he and his secretary seemed to be spending a lot of time together. A lot of time behind closed doors. Some hugs. Some arm touches. Flirtatious laughter. Even a kiss or two here and there. It might have been crossed off as a lonely widower and an attractive woman in a bad marriage finding solace in each other's arms until November. Lorna Anderson and her four children and her husband were driving back to Emporia one night on Highway 177, a lonely two-lane road. Lorna announced that she was sick and had to throw up. She pulled over, turned off the car, got out, and bent over. She called to Martin to say that she had dropped her keys. He got out of the car and began to help her look for them. Suddenly, a figure appeared out of the darkness. He was wearing a ski mask and brandishing a twenty-two caliber handgun and demanded Martin's wallet. When Martin handed it over, the gunman pulled the trigger. Three times, shooting Martin in the head, while his children in the car watched, horrified. He died instantly. The next day, Lorna called her insurance agent and asked him how to file a claim for benefits under her husband's life insurance policy. From the beginning, the police were suspicious about Lorna's story. How was it that a gunman was waiting on a lonely, dark, deserted road in the middle of the night at the exact spot where Lorna got sick and pulled over the car? They began poking around Emporia and soon discovered that Lorna had not been shy about letting people know that she was miserable with Martin. She had, in fact, hired an attorney and started to file for divorce at least once, but let the matter drop. They also discovered that she had taken several lovers around town. One of those suspected lovers was the local Lutheran pastor and her boss, the Reverend Tom Bird whose wife had just died. She'd also been involved with her hairdresser, Daniel Carter. When they interviewed him, he told them that earlier she had asked if he knew of anyone who would be interested in making $5,000 by killing her husband. He put her in contact with his brother, a contractor named Daryl Carter, who had also been involved with Lorna. Daryl took the money and passed it on to someone in Mississippi. But the murder never happened, and the plot fell through. Daryl Carter later testified that he had met with Lorna and Tom at Tom's office in the church. Tom told him it had to either look like suicide or a botched robbery. 
Reportedly, Tom told him, I'm a man of God, and I'm going to kill Martin Anderson. Lorna told Carter that the $5,000 came from Tom, part of Sandy's life insurance policy. Tom and Lorna were both arrested. Lorna was charged with criminal solicitation and second-degree murder. Tom was charged with criminal solicitation. Tom took the stand in his own defense. They were both convicted. Lorna was sentenced to five and a half to 18 years in the state penitentiary. Tom was sentenced to two and a half to seven years. The police decided to take a second look at Sandy's death. They got a court order to exhume her body. The medical examiner discovered that she had been struck several times in the back of her head and likely died from blood loss when she hit the rocks in the river after being thrown off the bridge. One and a half years after Lorna's death, Tom was charged with murder. After deliberating for six hours, Tom was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Tom was the prime suspect in Martin's murder as well. And five years later, he and Lorna were finally charged with that crime. Lorna struck a deal with the prosecutors and pled guilty to second-degree murder. She testified against Tom. She said they did it to collect life insurance money so they could move to New Mexico and start a new life. Tom would open the counseling center and eventually start a television ministry. She identified Tom as the gunman who murdered her husband. Tom did not testify at this trial. There were no eyewitnesses, no direct evidence, no DNA, only Lorna's testimony and Tom's inconsistent statements about when he came home and what he was wearing. But the jury found him not guilty. Lorna, having already pled guilty to second-degree murder, was sentenced to 15 years to life. They both became model prisoners. Tom met a woman before he went to prison, and he married her. And after he was released on parole, they started a ministry. In fact, while Tom was in prison, he began a special ministry called Convicts for Christ, and he began counseling men and women who were separated by incarceration. He organized tennis tournaments and fundraisers for children whose parents were incarcerated. He came up for parole in 2001, but was denied, primarily because he never accepted responsibility for his wife's death. He said she was depressed and she may have committed suicide. Or, he said, perhaps one of her lovers killed Sandy or Martin. Perhaps, he thought, Daniel Carter was the trigger man in the Martin Anderson murder, and his brother Daryl lied, incriminating Tom, to take the attention off Daniel. In 2004, Tom came up for parole again. The membership of the parole board had changed, and this time, Tom's request was granted. He was released, and eventually also released from supervision. He was a free man. He and his new wife, Terry, moved to Kansas City and then on to Iowa, where they run a marriage counseling center. 
To this day, he maintains his innocence in both crimes. Lorna had some difficulty adjusting to prison life, but eventually earned her college degree while behind bars. She became involved with a ministry sponsored by the United Methodist Church called Women for Justice and Mercy, trying to ensure that incarcerated mothers stayed in contact with their children. She also started a chapter of United Methodist Women in the prison. And like Tom, she was also married. She was denied parole several times, but finally her request was granted in 2006, and she was released from supervision eight years later in 2014. Upon her release, she took a job as an administrative assistant at Interfaith Housing Services in Hutchison, Kansas. She was instrumental in developing several programs to help the needy save money so they could become self-sufficient and find housing. In 2017, she was appointed Chief Executive Officer of that agency. Two people, Tom Bird and Lorna Anderson, who made tragic mistakes. Two people who received second chances and seemed to have made the most of them. But this is also the story of two other people, two young lives full of hope and promise, cut short by greed and lust of the pastor and the secretary. Today's episode is brought to you by Landlocked KC. You guys know how much we love fashion and our hometown of Kansas City here at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. One of my favorite local clothing companies is Landlocked KC. Not only does Landlocked help all of us Kansas Cityans show off our KC pride with their Comeback City collection, but they also advocate for equality in race, religion, orientation, and gender with their equality collection. If you're all about a good comeback, whether that's about the Royals and Chiefs coming back to win the World Series and Super Bowl, or about our community coming back from the COVID shutdown and current political climate, you'll find some amazing new pieces in Landlock's Comeback City collection. I recently purchased Landlock's Coach's logo jacket, and I'm obsessed. You can see how I styled it on our social media pages. Check out the rest of Landlock's fun pieces at www.landlockedco.com. Show us what you buy in our VIP Facebook group. Oh, and go Chiefs! Another good, juicy Kansas murder. Huh, Dad? Indeed it is. Pretty good. I did not know about this little uh, Emporia, Kansas scandal here. Well, it was it was all over the news back in the 80s and 90s. And in fact, there's a a four-part miniseries uh, about it that you can still watch called um, Murder Ordained. It was on CBS, and um, it uh, it got pretty high ratings from from what I recall. A lot of people involved with it think it's more fiction than fact, but uh, it's out there. I saw it on YouTube, but I did not watch it uh, because I did not have time because it was over three hours. Um, but it's on YouTube and Kathy Bates is in it. Have you seen it? I saw it when it was first on. Okay. Um, yeah. Kathy Bates, Keith Carradine. What plays, else is he on? I don't know who he is. Oh, uh, well, we're both Big Bang fans. Yes. He's Penny's dad. 
Oh, I'll have to see a picture. I'm not as I'm not as much of a faithful watcher as you are. I'm looking. Hold on. Joe Beth Williams is in it. I think she plays Lorna Anderson. Yes, she does. Hmm. I've seen this guy. I wouldn't have immediately known he was Penny's dad, but well, that was what thirty-five or forty years ago. So true. I'm sure he's changed somewhat. Yes. Well, I definitely know who Kathy Bates is. So. What part did she play? Do you know? She played Bobby. Um, I've got it in the notes. Oh, no, I don't. But it was Bobby something. Let me look. Okay, Kathy Bates played Bobby Burke. I don't recall who she was. Must be a friend. Life. Yeah, I, that's Probably. all I could think of was a friend of one of them. Probably was. And she's listed third, but that could also be because she's Kathy Bates. Like, maybe the part wasn't as big, but right. I don't know. I'll have to watch it. All right, well, before we get into discussing this more, I'm going to go over the Trends of the Crime, sponsored by Style a la Mode. So, we're back in the 80s this week. Fun times. So, although, you know, like I've said before, the fashions do not get to Kansas as quickly as they get to other places, uh, I did want to go over the general overview of the national trends of the 80s. Before I got into, you know, what us Kansans probably wore. And I do want to get dad's input on that because he was alive then and I was not. Um, All right. So Harper's Bazaar described fashion in the 80s as follows. The 1980s were a decade of bold style, colors, and silhouettes and heaping amounts of permed hair. With trends spanning from ripped tights and biker jackets to polished oversized blazers and poof skirts and style icons ranging from Joan Jett to Joan Collins, it was one of the most eclectic decades in fashion. Wikipedia describes it as... Fashion of the 1980s placed heavy emphasis on cheap clothes and fashion accessories. (laughs) Cheap clothes. (laughs) Apparel tended to be very bright and vivid in appearance. Women expressed an image of wealth and success through shiny costume jewelry, such as large faux gold earrings, pearl necklaces, and clothing covered with sequins and diamonds. I'd say it's pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I uh, wrote a big oral history report in college about fashion in the 80s, and it was all about Farrah Fawcett hair, the... Women's wear, at least, and what the women in Dallas wore with mm-hmm. the shoulder pads, big hair, costume mm-hmm. jewelry. So, well, what about the men? All I heard from you there was women. Well, what I saw was a lot of like young men in like bright neon pants, backwards caps, like that. What's that material? That polyester. Is it polyester? I don't know. I'm assuming that's. I know I used to go to basketball games when the Kansas City Kings were still playing here, and I would yell at uh, at the opposing coaches, hey, how many polyesters did you have to kill to make that suit? Oh, my gosh. Funny. Funny. Like that jacket. His jacket, the blue jacket. Sure. Mm-hmm. Is that polyester? I can't tell, but okay. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, it was very Fresh Prince, obviously, because Fresh Prince was in the... 80s and 90s. Yeah, just lots of bright patterns, colors. Now the, you know, the old older men were more boring. It was like, I saw like those, they said something, what kinds of jackets did it say? Um, 
not biker jackets, but like with the sports team on the back. Letterman jackets. Letterman jackets, but also like I guess the polyester ones. They wear the basketball games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you picturing what I'm saying? I am. I am. Now you tell me, what were the men wearing in the 80s? Well, I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and I remember uh, uh, I graduated from law school in 87 and and, uh, had a job at an investment banking firm, so I wore suits every day. And back then, uh, the well-dressed, rich, successful investment (laughs) banker like myself, we'd make sure we we always had uh, a three-piece suit with vests. There'd be a a little collar stay that we would put underneath the tie. Um, my wedding picture, I had aviator. <gasps> oh, gosh. I had aviator glasses. I remember. Uh-huh. Uh, I I had a mustache that some people uh, said <laughs> might look like someone in a dubious type film? of film might be uh, <laughs> might be sporting as well. Um, Describe your suit. From your wedding day, um, if I remember, it was white. Was it was it not? Yes, it was white, and all of my groomsmen had on tan suits. Uh, I protested vigorously about that white suit. I wanted, uh, I wanted a, a dark suit with tails and an ascot tie. Uh, my mother-in-law and, and uh, fiance said no. So. When you were married and your sister was married, you may recall what I was wearing. Yes. You got you finally got to wear your dream groom outfit. Indeed I did. Tails, ascot tie, the whole bit. Yep. But not for my wedding. Uh, a white a white suit, white shoes. Um yeah, it was it was pretty sad. Uh, <laughs> now I remember for a leisure time, of course, in the eighties we were we were still wearing jeans, but uh, in the summer our shorts were quite a bit shorter than mm-hmm. they are today. Uh, so we'd have on these shorts that would go probably mid-thigh. mid-thigh. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and um, white crew socks that we'd pull up just under our knee. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking back, that was pretty funny as well. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm glad we're past all of that. Well, not really, though. It's, it's back, so... Oh, the short, the, well, the, the short shorts. Well, my husband wears bag. shorter shorts. Well, but he's all about his muscular legs. So. There we go. All the men in that family, they uh, they wear the shorter shorts, you know. Um, but yeah, especially eighties fashion for women always seems to cycle back every few years. So I think we're more nineties at the moment, early two thousands looks right now. But yeah. Well, in Kansas, there was a lot of permed hair. I saw those aviator glasses you were talking about, Letterman's jackets. Nothing too crazy, but it it went along with the national trends. But yeah, costume jewelry just may not have looked as high fashion as the girls in L.A. Mm -hmm. or the guys in L.A. Mm -hmm. All right, should we discuss the uh, murder? Well, let's do it. First, tell me why you chose the Amaretto Sour today. Uh, it was uh, it was one of the classier '80s cocktails. I thought I looked at a bunch of them. We had things like the uh, Sex on the Beach, the Screaming Orgasm Between the Sheets, <laughs> things like that uh-huh. that uh, were not uh, were not appropriate for a family style podcast like this. But I guess right. since I've just mentioned them, that's out the window. <laughs> 
But, you know, those were just sweet foo-foo cocktails, and you and I don't like those things, so I tried to find something with a bit more class to it. And so we're going with the Amaretto Sour. It's uh, going to have uh, a nice almond nutty flavor with a little background kick of bourbon and, of course, some fresh squeezed lemon juice. All right. We do like to keep it classy here at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion, so. That's our middle name, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Maybe we should cocktails of classy, classy crime crimes. and fashion. Yes. Yeah, we, we should put it in the name just so people really know yes. that we're classy. Yes. <laughs> that doesn't have the opposite effect at all. All right. Well, I wanted to dedicate some time to Sandy because she sounds like she was a really cool gal. Mm-hmm. Very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know she had the math degree. I'm sorry if I missed this. Was she a college professor? She was. She was a college professor at uh, Emporia State University. Your mm-hmm. sister's alma, alma mater. mater. Yes. Um, by all accounts, she was very popular, uh, very hardworking. They're, her students really liked her. She was also working on a degree in computer math. Mm-hmm. So that would have, uh, you know, expanded her her repertoire. She, I assume, had she lived, she probably would have gone on for a doctorate, and um, you know, probably would have uh, moved on from Emporia State to a. Uh, a bigger school, like, oh, I don't know, Rock Chalk KU. <laughs> or Ema K-State. <laughs> Sorry, we're more KU people here. But it is hard to be a KU fan at the moment uh, with the way they're playing football this year, but That's whatever. true, but basketball starts soon. True. And then I'll be a happy KU fan again. Yes. <laughs> you always said when I was little, I was allowed to root for K-State in football, but that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And then I ruined your life by going there. All right. Back to the uh, discussion at hand. I also wanted to talk about the uh, fighting due to her success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How her husband kind of seemed like a jerk face. Right. Well, I think in uh, especially even back in the 80s, it, it was not normal for a minister's wife to uh, work outside the home. Uh, she was almost expected to be a unpaid staff member. Uh, oftentimes, ministers' wives were expected to lead the choir or, you know, teach Sunday school classes and coordinate uh, potluck dinners and things like Ugh. that. Uh, that was just kind of the expectation. It was almost a two for one deal when pastors would would uh, would go to work at a church. A lot of times, I know back. Uh, Back uh, in those days, sometimes I'd sit on committees, and we wouldn't just interview the the pastor, who back then was almost always a man, but we'd also be interviewing the pastors. Oh, well, of course, and we'd also be interviewing the pastor's wife. And uh, I remember one church that I went to, a pastor came and interviewed, and uh, he was not called. That's what they call it. They mm-hmm. call the calling you're called to be the pastor of a church, not hired by the church. But he was not called because uh, his wife, who was in their interview with him, was wearing toeless shoes. What? She was wearing toeless shoes, and the congregation or the committee felt that would not go over well with the congregation, so uh, the pastor <laughs> did not get the job. So it's uh, it was a different world, and she broke the mold, and I, I would assume, I don't know this for a fact, but I would assume that uh, Pastor Tom was probably getting some flack from 
uh, church members about why his wife wasn't more involved, why she was sometimes absent on Sundays, um, you know, and uh, why she was working. I, I can just hear some of those hypocritical people ranting to him about his wife. So it did, I'm sure, did cause some friction. That mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, there were, there were three young children at home. And yeah. uh, depending on the hours they worked, uh, I'm assuming they both had to share responsibilities, and they were probably pretty tired at the end of the day. So it was mm-hmm. a it it was not an ideal happy marriage. I think mm-hmm. at at this time, it's just sad because you'd like to think that he fell in love with her because of her intelligence and her work ethic, and then it's like I mean, who knows? Maybe that's not maybe that's not why he fell in love with her, but mm-hmm. you would like to think that he appreciated that about her, mm-hmm. and then I don't want you to do what you're passionate about. And instead I want to force you to do something that I'm passionate about. It's just sad. It is. I feel like that happens a lot to women and it's Mm -hmm. ladies do what you want and do what you're passionate about and find a partner who appreciates that about you. Back to the expectations of being a pastor's family Mm -hmm. in a small town, especially I feel like it's your town royalty. If you're, the family of the pastor. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Depending on the depending on the uh, the denomination, yeah. the type of church. Yeah, Tom Bird was a pastor of a Lutheran church, and it was a the Lutherans have several different denominations. His was the uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which was a very fairly conservative branch of Lutheranism, uh, but. Um, any of what we would call mainline denominations, Lutherans, uh, Methodists, Episcopalians, uh, they tended to attract the more prominent citizens in town, as opposed to back then, you know, maybe the Southern Baptists or the Assemblies of God, which would be probably attract more working class folks. So um, there were some expectations that uh, the minister and his family needed to fulfill certain social responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And I think a spotlight was on them. Mm-hmm. Living in a fishbowl. Right. And uh, I think that's somewhat changing uh, today. Mm-hmm. Just as, as organized religion seems to be not as vibrant a part of our society, particularly in larger towns. So I think in small towns, it still may be. Mm-hmm. Well, I watched a show on, uh, you're going to laugh at how dumb this show is, called Preacher's Daughters that used to be on Lifetime. And the the storyline, it was a reality show. I remember quote, it. Quotes, reality show. It was about the, do- the rebellious daughters of the preachers mm-hmm. who didn't want to be the golden youth group child. Mm-hmm. and But it also touched on like how the wife was the first lady of the church, and she was expected to do everything that you just said, and... The daughter was expected to like go on all the trips and be like the leader of the youth group. And mm-hmm. of course, the show was really dumb, but I enjoyed it. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that kind of introduced because our church doesn't seem that way to me. So, um, I guess it was a whole new perspective for me. Yeah. Our church is pretty progressive. We have our awesome woman, Pastor Shelly. Shout out to Shelly. Shout out. And <laughs> and yeah, I just never felt like, oh, 
Shelly's family can't do what they want because Shelly's a pastor and they mm-hmm. have to represent, I mean, you right. know. And, and as I said, things have, things have changed in the last, what, 30 to 40 years since, since this happened. And I think it's a change for the better. Yes, for sure. Well, it's also, you also notice um, in situations like scandals like these, there's a pattern of people in positions of power who then, who are supposed to be, who are looked up to and supposed to be saints and, mm-hmm. you know, but then they tend to have big scandals like uh, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky mm-hmm. and um, Watergate scandal. And then stuff like the movie Spotlight and mm-hmm. the Netflix documentary, The Keepers. And it's just like ironic, but also hypocritical. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. It happens mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. Right. Well, sometimes power breeds abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly, I think the more control that a person has as a result of their position, the more vulnerable they are to uh, taking advantage of others. I mean, and let's be honest, it doesn't happen all the time. There are people in power and in, in the rel- world of religion and politics and law who I'm sure are are very upstanding and, and have a lot of integrity, but when they do slip, the lights on them. It makes a good yeah. story, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it. A lot of people say, "Well, I knew they couldn't be as holy or perfect as they present themselves." So, you know, there's a, a big responsibility. I think when power comes your way to to use it uh, for the good of the world and not to enhance your own ego or your own position. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Barack Obama and Michelle. I love them. They're perfect in my eyes. <laughs> Until they do a scandal. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, Sandy's murder. I'm going to let you lead this one because you watched a video about mm-hmm. this case. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, tell us again, like, give us a little rundown of that again. Well, the the initial thought was that she was driving on an unfamiliar road near a bridge. It was called the Rocky Ford Bridge. But if you were to go to Emporia today and say, where's the Rocky Ford Bridge? They would probably just give you a, a blank stare because today it's known as the Bird Bridge. And I it, wanted to ask about that. Um, why? Because that's where the murder happened. Tom Bird right. murdered so his wife. So we want to name it after a murder? Well, I think after the after the television miniseries came out, a lot of sightseers would go, "Hey, where's oh. that? Where's that that bridge where Bird murdered his wife?" And so now it's just com- commonly referred to as the Bird Bridge. I mean, the official name, of course, is still Rocky Ford oh, Bridge. Oh, okay. I thought they changed the name. But the the original police theory was she had been drinking. Probably that she was on an unfamiliar road. She was upset after the fight with her husband. She took a curve, didn't know the area, and just drove straight into the river. What does this remind you of? Car turned over, and uh, she was uh, she was killed. What does this remind you of? Well, you tell me. Well, this is sounding a lot like we went back in time a couple of weeks when we were talking about Chappaquiddick. I think you're right. I think you're right. And people are blaming it on the woman mm-hmm. when, um, mm-hmm. nope. But, I mean, we don't really know what happened with Mary Jo, but. Yeah. Uh, Sandy Bird, uh, pretty sure she was murdered, so. Yeah, and, in fact, 
the autopsy showed that she probably had no more than one drink. I mean, she was nowhere near intoxicated. But because the car was turned over, because she was in the water, I the, the police just immediately assumed, well, it's just a just a one car accident, a one car fatality. And there were things going on around the scene that led to, that should have been looked at. But because the cops had prejudged it an accident, they didn't. For example, somebody heard about this. They immediately drove their bike out to the to the scene, uh, rode a bike out there to the scene to look at it. You know, this is Kansas. If we hear a tornado alert, what do we always do? We go outside. We go out to look at it. Well, mm-hmm. he heard a murder. He gets on his bike. He rides out there. First thing he noticed is a big splotch of blood on the wooden bridge about the size of a plate. He notified the officers of it. They just sort of nodded and thanked him. Another one of the investigating officers, a, a highway patrolman named, I believe, John Rust, I believe. Something um, like that. You said it, didn't you? He saw that, too, and he looked at, he saw blood on the trees, the tree leaves uh, leading from the bridge down to where the body was discovered. And again, a lot of people, they thought, well, you know, people fish off this bridge. It's probably just fish bait blood. Somebody, you know, that's how the blood got on the bridge and that's how the blood got on the tree leaves. Somebody was fishing and just some some blood hit the, the leaves. So they never really secured the scene. There were people tramping all over. They were de- they were lifting the body out of the river. They brought in a, a, a tow truck to lift the scene out. And uh, as Macy just pointed out, that officer's name was John Rule, not John Rust. But uh, when he brought when he brought these things up, um, his superior said, "Oh, don't worry about it. It's a car accident." He also noticed, man, there's no skid marks here. If she was going to uh, if she found herself missing a curve, wouldn't she have at least applied the brakes? No skid marks. And in fact, when he looked at the car, um, the front seat was too far back for her to have even reached the pedal. She was only 5'1". And it, it appeared that somebody a lot taller than her had actually been driving that car. Um, that reminds me of a Columbo episode we saw a while back where that Ooh. Columbo noticed the seat had been moved. Um, her watch was off. It was laying um, on the floor on the, on the riverbed. The seatbelt was unfastened. She was known to almost be fanatic about fastening her seatbelt. Now, her husband said, no, she only wore it when the kids were in the car. But her friends have said she always made a big deal about everybody in the car fastening their seatbelt. So there's just a lot of things that just didn't set right with Officer Rule. And looking back on it, a lot of people have now said, well, yeah, it just isn't right. But the police just made up their minds it was a car accident. And so no evidence was preserved. Nobody looked at the blood. No one uh, asked questions. They just chalked it up to a one-car accident. They said what, again, their theory was when they finally got around to to charging him with murder was that he had uh, beat her on the bridge, knocked her unconscious or at least stunned her, pushed her off the bridge, and she fell, hit some rocks below, and that caused a a kidney uh, massive kidney laceration, and she bled out in the bottom of the river. And then that he uh, he took off his clothes, which were probably splattered with blood, disposed of them somehow, and jogged home. 
that's why he came into the house wearing uh, different clothes than he had on when he left, mm-hmm. according to the 14-year-old babysitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the police theory of the murder. And if they had listened to, to Officer Rule and actually done an investigation, there might have been some direct evidence. There might have been some blood evidence. There might have mm-hmm. been some fingerprints, but they never did that. And so it, it made the conviction and the trial a lot harder. And I think it's why a lot of people today, if you were to go to Emporia and there were some old timers around who went to that church or knew them, they would still swear up and down that Tom Bird could not have killed his wife. Yeah, okay. Whatever. How traumatizing to be that babysitter. Mm-hmm. Find out Sandy was dead and be like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. I was in a home alone with that possible murderer. Yep. At 14. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that would be so scary. Yeah. And she knew something was wrong because mm-hmm. he came in with different clothes. Yeah. Yeah. So you know she was like, uh... Well, according to Bird, well, she was just confused. She'd probably fallen yeah. asleep, and she didn't really remember anything. But I love when men tell me what I'm thinking is wrong. Uh, <laughs> and 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 Bird's timeline was off as well. Uh-huh. He never could remember when he called, when he came home, when he called the police. Just you know, just a, a jumble of uh, different times, different different dates, of course. And he said, "Well, my." I, I was so worried about my wife. That's why I could. I wasn't concerned about looking at a clock. I was. I was. I was trying to find Sandy. I had no idea where she was. As, as you would if, say, what? What Ev? What Evs? Because I. I feel like if someone you love is missing, then you're diligent about the time because you're like, okay, when was the last time I saw them? What time is it now? Mm-hmm. What time do I? You know. Mm-hmm. Then you're you're nervous about how much time is passing because with a missing person you really only have really you only have twenty four hours usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and Rule said he was also struck by uh, what Tom Bird said when he informed him that his wife was dead and where she was found. I guess he said she's in the river by the Rocky Ford Bridge, and uh, Tom Bird's first statement was. Well, why was she there? We never go there. Then he said, where, where is was it? I noticed that. So, again, I think he was trying to say, well, we we, we never drive out there. It's, un- it's unfamiliar. She must have driven off. And, but then he said, where is it? You know, right. clearly what he Contradict. should have done was said, where is it? And then said, oh, we oh, never go we there. We never go there. Right. <laughs> yes. It's those little things that the the detectives, they just know. To look for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Let's talk about Lorna and mm-hmm. and semicolon Martin's murder. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I should mention one other thing about Sandy's murder. Oh, yes. Uh, after they got her out of the river and, and the medical examiner determined the cause of death, which was a truncated kidney. In other words, the kidney had basically been split in half when mm-hmm. she hit the rocks Ew. and uh, but the person who told Tom about the cause of death was an employee of the medical examiner's office named Martin Anderson. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Wow. Just a coincidence. It doesn't mean anything. But uh, but it is the same Martin Anderson. Yes, it's the same Martin Anderson. Uh, I wish it meant something, but it doesn't. All right, Lorna. Lorna, Lorna, Lorna. She was something, huh? 
she uh, she got around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to trash her reputation, no. but you know, she uh, she evidently uh, was was very attractive. People said she had a very sultry voice and uh, was not happy in her marriage. And uh, a lot of men around Emporia found their way to uh, to her, or she found her way to them, to put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought it was funny how she filed for insurance the day after her husband's murder. I think it's funny right. that people think they, they're smart enough to get away with murder, and then they do stupid stuff like that. Right. And just right. think, like... Everyone does this. No. Wives whose husbands have just died don't try and get the money as soon as they possibly can. Right. I mean, you know, (laughs) I mean, I've had family members die and usually worrying about life insurance is certainly down the road. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's after the funeral and and after the shock has worn off, you know, then you start doing things like filing for life insurance and, and you know, paying bills and things, but uh, not... Not within 24 hours after someone dies. So, again, just suspicious behavior. And I know there's the argument that everyone grieves differently, but that is, like you said, suspicious behavior. It's enough to raise an eyebrow. It is. It is. So, tell us about Tom's theory about Martin's death. Well, Tom believed, or said he believed, that... uh, Sandy was depressed. She may have committed suicide. Uh, He thought perhaps one of Sandy's old lovers killed Martin at her request. Uh, But he said, the one thing I do know for sure is I did not kill Sandy or Martin for that matter. So, um, you know, Tom's theory was that, well, as I said, you know, Sandy either killed herself uh, or it was a car accident when it came to Martin she either hired someone else to do it or or tempted someone else to do it. But again, he denied knowing anything about it. He said he was in Topeka the day that happened. But Topeka was only about probably 50 miles or so from the yeah. scene of the murder. So clearly he could have driven out there and, and done it if he wanted to. Do you think he was the gunman? You know, I'm kind of up in the air on that. I Me think too. he certainly could be. Mm-hmm. Uh I definitely think he was involved. Oh, I think he knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Whether he actually pulled the trigger or not, I don't know. I uh, One of the investigators said after this was all over, when talking about Lorna Anderson, he said, sometimes she tells the truth, sometimes she lies, but I know that she knows a lot more than she's telling. Mm. Who so, said that? Tom said that? No, one oh. of the investigators. Mm. I would not be surprised if it if it were someone else mm-hmm. that, that did too. it, that they essentially hired to do it or she talked into doing it. I know one theory was that uh, Daniel Carter, who was a hairdresser in Emporia that had had an affair with her, brought his brother into a murder for hire plot. And they actually she and Tom actually gave him five thousand dollars. And he supposedly found somebody in Mississippi. But then that guy absconded with the money. Some people think that perhaps Daniel Carter did it and his brother Daryl came up with this story to take the heat off his brother and, and incriminate Tom Bird. I don't know. You know, but uh, but clearly whether he pulled a trigger or not, he knew what was going to happen and I'm sure he was not displeased when it happened. He had this fantasy that 
he and Lorna were going to move to New Mexico and open a counseling center, and he was going to get a TV ministry and, you know, become very, very famous. Uh, didn't work out that way. Uh, can we talk about the fact that he has a marriage counseling place now? Yes, he's somewhere up in Iowa now, he and his new wife. Who, who he- on earth wants to get marriage counseling from a man who quite possibly murdered his wife? Well, I don't know. Do people not Google their therapists? He's doing it. He's Oh uh, my god. He, Literally he, one Google search would tell yeah. you. In between before he went to jail, he met a school teacher and uh her name's Terry and uh, when he was in prison, uh they were married by proxy, I think, or maybe they were married before he went in. But anyway, she stuck by him all the he must have been in prison for 11 or 12 years and she stood by him. And when he was released, they moved first to Kansas City, Kansas, and then eventually went on to Iowa and evidently are doing what he and Lorna wanted to do, which was to do counseling. So, wow. more power to him, I guess. Um, well, if, if any of you listeners are needing a counselor, I would suggest not going with Tom Bird in Iowa because um, he killed his wife. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's something interesting. Um before the uh, before all these murders happened, Tom and Sandy were at a church conference somewhere, and there are you know other Lutheran ministers and their wives there. And uh, the Lutheran Church, like a lot of churches, have uh, life insurance policies for their for their ministers and their families. And I guess one night uh, they were all sitting. There were. Th- two or three couples sitting around, and they were having a few drinks after a hard day of doing the Lord's work. And uh, they got talking about their new life insurance policies and uh, joking about what they would do with the money if their spouse died. And, you know, well, then the conversation, well, how would you get rid of your spouse? Or how would you collect the money? And, you know, they were they were kind of joking, talking about all the various ways they would uh, they would end their spouses to collect the money, and then Sandy said something. Well, I'd probably just commit suicide and make it look like an accident. And uh, somebody remembered that, and they eventually wrote a letter to Tom and and to the investigators. They were trying to get him a new trial, but you know they 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 took this as a warning of suicide that she killed herself, that she had already planned to kill herself. And by the time the word got back to the investigators, they they found that they said that, yeah, she had actually sent a suicide note to one of the people they were talking to that night, telling him what she was planning to do. And they finally contacted him. I think he was in Florida, maybe at that time. And he said, well, no, I got a letter from her. And she just thanked me for listening, you know, to her about her marriage problems. But she never (laughs) said, I'm going to kill myself. So. But again, there are still people out there who defend Tom Bird and say, no, Sandy probably did, probably did commit suicide. And, you know, it was just unfortunate that he was caught up with Lorna Anderson and it made it look bad and um, just a just a lapse in judgment, but certainly not murder. Well, he's not fooling me. <laughs> I've researched enough of this kind of thing. You know, maybe, maybe, okay, I'll, I'll say there's teensy bit of possibility, but my gut is telling me he did it. I think he, I think he killed Sandy. I, like I said, I've got, 
I would probably, if I had to come down one side or the other, say maybe he didn't kill. I agree. Martin. Martin Anderson. Yes. But Lorna said he did. I mean, when, when she was charged, she negotiated a plea deal. And as part of the deal, she would testify against him. And she testified he was the trigger man. In fact, she was interviewed just a f- well about four years ago by a newspaper. Uh, after she got out of prison and started her new job and, and someone asked her about it and uh, they asked her if she recognized the gunman and said she whispered it was the minister. So she's still sticking to her story as well. Well, only a few people know the truth. Like most of our murders, there there are only a few people who, who know exactly what happened that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unlike... Uh, some of our murders. In this case, two of those people are still alive. Right. And they are still sticking to their stories. So we may never know. It's always interesting, though, to wait and see on the the deathbed confessions of mm-hmm. these people. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you get the real truth. Well, we know that if, uh, if Tom Bird's new wife suddenly ends up mm-hmm. uh, in, a river. in an early death, that uh, this is going to be... This may shed new light on it, but Mm -hmm. by all accounts, they're very happy together right now. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. cool for them, I guess. But I hope she's careful. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Me too. All right. Well, I thought it'd be kind of fun. Well, maybe not fun, but interesting (laughs) to talk about some other pastor scandals that Mm -hmm. I found on CNN Mm -hmm. to end our episode. Oh, yeah. I don't know any of these pastors, so you, you tell us if you know who any of these are. First of all, do you know this one? Do you know how to say his name? Jim Baker. It's Baker. Jim okay. Baker and Tammy Faye. Of course I know that. I recognize the name Tammy Faye. Yes. All right. Jim Baker and his wife, Tammy Faye, led an, oh God. Evangelistic empire. Called PTL, or Praise the Lord, headquartered in their own theme park in Fort Mill, South Carolina, near Charlotte, North Carolina. Revelations that Jim Baker had paid former church secretary Jessica Hahn to keep quiet about a sexual encounter raised questions about his finances in the late 1980s. In 1989, he was sentenced to 45 years in prison for fleeing? Fleecing. Fleecing. Stole, stealing <laughs> money from there. his flock. Okay. For fleecing his flock of $158 million. Did you know about this? Oh, I knew. I know all about the Jim Baker episode because I was actually... Um, Working in a in a company. In fact, I was a, a junior partner in a company with with one of the people who did a lot of work uh, for Jim Baker and his empire out in South Carolina. So um, that's cool. I, I do. I know. I know a lot of things about Jim Baker that have come to light. I know some things that that <gasps> haven't come to light about Juicy. him. Uh, I don't want to get into too much of it here. But yeah. Baker is a showman. Um, and I think an, a good word might be a huckster. He was eventually released from prison. Um, his wife, Tammy Faye, who uh, famously could cry at the drop of a hat, uh, divorced him when he was in prison. And she married a gentleman named Ro Messner, who I used to work with. Uh, and uh, they moved to the Kansas City area. And then Tammy Faye uh, got cancer and died a number of years ago. So do you know her? <laughs> Have you met her? I talked to her on the phone one time. <gasps> wow. Yes. Celebrity encounters. I did. 
Um, cool. I was contacted about perhaps handling her divorce from oh. Jim Baker. And uh, I quoted what uh, I would need in the form of a retainer to get involved in something like this. And I never heard back from her. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, <laughs> Baker today is is back on the air. Mm-hmm. You know, when he was doing PTL, he had a, a daily television program that brought in tens of thousands, I mean, probably hundreds of thousands of viewers. Uh, when he got out of prison, he's back on the air, but now he is uh, selling products. And one of the products he is selling is a cure for COVID. Hmm. Oh. It is uh, absolutely guaranteed and foolproof if you just take this product. <laughs> if you have COVID, you'll be cured. If you don't have it, you'll be protected. You'll never get so it. So you can, you can probably uh, go online and, and find uh, Jim Baker today selling his product. So, And this episode is sponsored by Jim Baker's COVID care. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. It is not. <laughs> so to answer your question, yes, I, I know quite a bit about uh, Jim That's Baker, cool. probably more than I want to or should right well we won't make you dig into that all right the second one i have the famous tv preacher jimmy swaggart was caught with a prostitute in a new orleans hotel in 1988 but his tearful televised confession kept his 12 million dollars a year 10,000 employee religious empire together until he was linked to another prostitute in 1991 Lawsuits and an internal revenue service tax lien put an end to his media reign. Yep, I remember this one, too. I've never met Jimmy Swaggart or talked to him, but uh, yeah, he uh, he he liked he liked the girls (laughs) and uh, he didn't mind opening his wallet for him. So he uh, just couldn't seem to stay away and it ended up uh, costing him everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Man, the 80s. I know. Crazy time. I'm mm-hmm. sad I missed it. Mm-hmm. All right. Number three out of five. A gay escort accused Ted Haggard, then pastor of Colorado's biggest church and president of the nation's largest evangelical group, of paying him for drug-fueled sex in 2006. Haggard acknowledged receiving a massage from the man and buying methamphetamine, but he said he threw the drugs away. His church fired him for sexually immoral conduct. I should hope so. Well, he threw the drugs away, but he kept the massage. Uh huh. <laughs> yes, I remember Ted Haggard too, out in Colorado Springs. Uh, very, very much uh, an anti-gay preacher, but it hmm. turned out that uh, he didn't exactly practice <sighs> what he preached. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Hmm. Keeping my mouth shut. So yeah, that's another one. <laughs> All right, we're getting closer to present day now. In a 2010 lawsuit, four former congregants of Bishop Eddie Long's Atlanta area megachurch accused the pastor of using his position and expensive gifts, such as cars and international trips, to coerce them into sexual acts while they were teens. Long denied the allegations and settled with the young men in 2011. I assume this was another anti-gay preacher. I don't really remember this one at all. So I can't really comment on it. Yeah, well. But I wouldn't be surprised. Wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. All right, lastly, a televangelist and founder of the Daystar Television Network, the Reverend Marcus Lamb confessed that he cheated on his wife, Joni Lamb, who also leads the network, in front of his TV audience in 2010. 
saying he was coming clean in the face of a $7.5 million extortion attempt. I don't Man. remember this one either, but I'm, I'm ho- I'm, I certainly hope that he confessed to Joni Lamb before he went on television and confessed to the world. Mm. You know, there's one you, you don't have on here. And in fact, <gasps> it was a headline in the New York Times this morning. <gasps> Tell us. Well, it's about Liberty Baptist University. Okay. Um, founded by Jerry Falwell, who's one of the, again, one of the more famous uh, fundamentalist preachers who started uh, the moral majority back in the 70s and early 80s, founded Liberty University. He died, and his son, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., became president of the university. And uh, his downfall started last year when there was a picture of him on a yacht with his arm around a young woman, and his pants were unzipped, and he was holding a a glass with a dark beverage in it that uh, he claimed was just a joke, that his pants were too small, he couldn't get them zipped up, and there was nothing but dark water. Dark water? Dark water is what he He said. He couldn't have said Coca-Cola? He said dark water was in the glass. Um, But uh, it it turned out that uh, Mr. Falwell, and he was not a preacher, he was an attorney. His father was the pastor, but he went to law school instead and then became president of the school. Um, I won't tell all the salacious comments in the article in the New York Times, but I'd encourage people to read it if they want to. But uh, what what his, what caused his downfall is uh, one of the pool boys huh. uh, at his house claimed that he and Falwell's wife, Becky, uh, were having an affair and uh, that uh, Jerry Jr. liked to watch. Oh. And uh, he denied this. He, he admitted that they were having an affair, but or that, that Becky and the pool boy were having an affair, but he denied ever participating in it or watching it or getting any pleasure out of it. Hmm. But uh, after, after that latest one, uh, the, college, uh, the college fired him, and just last week, he filed a lawsuit against the college for damaging his reputation. Now, and and, uh, that's after the college gave him anywhere between $2 million and $10 million in severance to leave. Oh, my And now he has turned around. He has now turned around and sued the college for damaging his reputation. He said they they should have defended him against all of this, uh, even though he's— He's on he's, he's their picture. So whatever. Right. But again, just another example here of someone who uh, I think let power go to his head. Mm-hmm. So, but if you're if you're interested in this, check out today's issue of the of the New York Times. And we are recording this on November first. Oh, November first. So yes. November first, New York Times. But I I do feel I want to give a caveat here again. Um, you know, we've talked about some of the scandals, but you know there are. Uh, tens of thousands of dedicated uh, men and women who who lead churches and nonprofits, who are teachers and uh, um, in positions of influence and power, who live lives of integrity. Uh, unfortunately, they don't get the publicity. Mm-hmm. It's it's the road dogs like we've talked about today who get the publicity and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. So please don't don't leave your church, don't no. fail to trust people. <laughs> Just keep your eyes open yes. and and uh, be alert. And thank you to all of those people we know and in, in these positions of power who are awesome people and great people. Well said. 
All right. Well, this is coming after election day, so I hope you all voted. Um, Me too. Hope you all ex- exercised your right to vote. And uh, it's like I'm talking in the future here. I, I don't know. know what's going to happen. I don't I'm either. Scared. I don't either. <laughs> all right. So we'll see. Next week, we are going to discuss the infamous Theodore Bundy or Ted Bundy. The handsome young man who shockingly killed young women all over what campus? Well, he was uh, he in was California. convicted in uh, in Tallahassee, Florida. Right. But, uh, the, they have suspected he's uh, he's ultimately confessed to killing thirty six women uh, in four states over a four year period. Didn't he start in California? I'm not sure. Okay. We'll have to wait well, we'll next wait week to find out. <laughs> I'm uh, pulling my knowledge from the recent uh, Zac Efron movie. So, all right. I'm excited. Okay. And we will. Oh, and this will be our penultimate. Did I say that correctly? Penultimate, yes. Episode of season one. Well, next week will be next our penultimate. Week. Yes, next yes. week. And mm-hmm. then the following week will be our season finale. But we are keeping that one a surprise. Yes. So. All right. Well, everyone, have a great week, and we will see you next time. Okay. See you all later. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. <laughs>